The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. We invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, I appreciate all that went into planning um, the worship service today. If you noticed in that so many of the lyrics that we sang today, there was a common theme. Uh, the blood being one, the blood of Christ washing away our sins. Um, there was another theme that was woven in there that is tied into our text today. And it deals with the, the veil in the temple being torn. And um, this is where we're going to come to today. And um, the music today, the lyrics have done a wonderful job in preparing our hearts for this text. Let me read it and then we'll dive in. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. I knew I'd mess that up, um, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Today, we are going to look at this text and specifically look at the abandonment, the forsakenness that Jesus experiences. Um, Not too long ago, in fact, just back in January of this year, we were Enraptured by the news of the Costa Concordia, this cruise ship that had ran aground just off the coast of Italy. And uh, this uh, this captain of this cruise cruise ship, Captain Chatino, uh, he took the, the ship deliberately off its course as he was rounding around Tuscany. He took it off course so that a member of his crew might be able to. Uh, signal to his family who were on the shore, who were living there. And as he did, he he ran aground and hit some of the rocky structure underneath the surface of the sea and tore a huge gaping hole in the side of this vessel. It didn't take long for him to realize that, that the ship, the Costa Concordia, was in pretty bad shape and it was not going to take long for it to sink. And so he did what was a good move and he turned the ship back and he ran it aground on the reef so that it wouldn't sink all the way. Um, within just a matter of minutes, really, the, the ship was listing very heavily to one side and and uh, it was taking on water very, very, very quickly. In the middle of all this, with all of these passengers on board, this Captain Chatino did what no captain of any ship should ever do. 
he abandoned his ship before everyone was off. Um, one of the um, Coast Guard members there found out that the captain hadn't indeed abandoned the ship. And it wasn't long after this event that those tapes were released of the, the conversation, the recordings. And this captain of the Coast Guard repeatedly instructed this captain of the vessel to get back on board, he said. Get back on board and you command this rescue. You get on there and you tell me how many are there and what's happening. We need you there. Well, it came out later on that Captain Shutino never went back on board. He never did. In fact, when everyone else was scrambling, not knowing what to do, they had paid money and they were on vacation and they didn't know what to do. He was making a beeline for one of the rescue boats. Um, first, he told the authorities that he never abandoned the ship. But later on, he changed his story and said that he had slipped and fallen into one of the rescue boats. Um, kind of a cowardly story. What we're left here with is a man who is supposed to, in that hour, in those minutes, he is supposed to stay with the ship. He is not to abandon it. He is not to forsake the ship. We are left with a picture of a coward of a man, afraid, giving up on manhood and giving up on his responsibility. Even when the news was coming in that bodies were already being found, he refused to go back on board. Unfortunately, that was not the only story that was uh, that was recovered from that day. Also on board, there was a 57 year old man and this 57 year old man was part of the crew. And he repeatedly went back on board to rescue the passengers. He went back so many times and took so many people safely off that he only stopped when he had badly fractured his leg. There was another man and husband and wife on board that they were going to the lifeboat and they were seeking to flee. And when the husband got with his wife to the lifeboat, he discovered that there was only uh, there was only enough um, life preservers for one. So he handed the life preserver to his wife. And that's the last time she ever saw her husband. We see in the midst of this, we see just a really dynamic juxtaposition, a contrast of of a man who is cowardly fleeing and forsaking his responsibility and all of those lives. And then we see, on the other hand, these that really didn't have the responsibility, but took it anyway. They took it and they embraced it. There is a. Um, a handbook, the Merchant's Marine, the Merchant Marine Officer's Handbook. In it, it states that the the very um, states what a captain of a vessel or a captain of a ship should indeed do. And this is taken from that. It says the first responsibility cited is this. The master is to be the last man to leave the vessel. And captain Shatino uh, let us down, let them down that day. There's also keeping with this nautical theme uh, on the on the campus of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. There is a massive granite marker dedicated to the memory of Commander William L. Herndon. 
1857, uh, Commander Herndon was in command of the commercial vessel Central America. And it was in charge of it had been put into charge of the U.S. government. Well, he was sailing this vessel and they ran into hurricane force winds. In 1857, he did everything he could, everything he had, he gave to the rescue of his passengers that day. He evacuated 31 women, 28, uh, 28 children before the ship sank into the stormy waters off of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. He gave his watch at the very end to a woman. He took his watch off of his wrist and he gave it to a woman who was getting into a lifeboat. And when he gave it to her, he said, get this to my wife. And tell her, I cannot leave. There's this monument there as a reminder for all of those students in the Naval Academy just what it means to stick with the ship, to not forsake. And today in this text, we will see that Jesus Christ is not like Captain Shatino at all. Jesus, even while. The ship of his life is going down. He is on that cross and it is sinking. He is right in the middle of hurricane force winds. He will not abandon the ship. You ever felt abandoned? Ever felt forsaken? There's people in this room I know that you have experienced things that I have not. Um, I pray I never will. You've experienced horrible things. Some of you are sitting here today and you're alone because a spouse has walked out. Some of you are sitting here today and and you're the product of a fatherless home because a father walked away from his family. Maybe you're here today and you're right in the middle of dealing with your company abandoning you, forsaking you. There will be times in our lives where. Everyone else around us will disappoint and they will forsake and they will abandon. But I want you to know, this is what I prayed earlier, that because Jesus was not, because he was forsaken, you and I will never be forsaken. Let's look at this text together. I want to walk through it. I want to just I want to just point out several things in this passage quickly as we walk through. The first thing we notice in this passage is this strange darkness that falls Jesus here was forsaken. And in the middle of this, we know this because there is this darkness that falls. Now, this you say, what's so strange about it being dark? What's strange is the fact that it is between the hours of noon and three. Noon and three in the afternoon. Is it typically dark between noon and three? No, it's usually the brightest part of the day, isn't it? We've just entered into daylight savings time and we're looking forward to longer days. But still, the brightest, hottest part of the day is going to be right about three in the afternoon. Some have tried to explain this away and say that this was a solar eclipse. That's what this was. There's a little problem with that, though, because the Passover always happened during a new moon or during a full moon. I'm sorry. And a solar eclipse can only happen during a new moon. So it can't be can't be a solar eclipse. Those that would explain it away this way would just be barking up the wrong tree. Others have gone so far as to say, well, you know, it's 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 in the Middle East. This was a dust storm on a very, very cloudy day. Sounds like a stretch to me, doesn't it? These are the same people that say that the uh, Egyptian army drowned in about 12 inches of water. 
Uh, instead of admitting that our God is real, he's the same one that spoke the universe into existence and holds it there today. He is the same one who this day causes everything to go black. In fact, if you look through biblical history, if you look back through the pages of Scripture, darkness was always a symbol of judgment. And that's what's going on here. This is a symbol of the very displeasure of God for humanity doing what they're doing and crucifying his son. Darkness was always a symbol of judgment. If you go back to uh, the exodus out of Egypt, the ninth plague that Moses brought to Pharaoh was the plague of darkness. And this plague was the one that broke everyone except for Pharaoh. This plague got everybody. It went dark. They could not see themselves. The Bible says that only where the Israelites lived was their light. Darkness here is a symbol of judgment. If you go to Joel chapter 2, verse 31, it talks about that in the day of the Lord, the sun will be turned to darkness. If you go forward and, and you hear Jesus talk about hell, he himself describes hell as a place of outer darkness. I always used to, as a kid, think about if, if hell is burning fire that never extinguishes, how in the world could it be dark? You ever known fire so hot that it is colorless? The creation and the sovereignty of God here, this is darkness coming over the land. In fact, 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what's going on here. God is sending a message to the world, the watchers, and he is displeased with what's going on. Don't paint God out to be, even though Scripture says that he was pleased to crush his son. He takes no pleasure from this. He's not pleased in what is happening here. He is pleased in a theological sense. He is pleased in the fact that it is his justice being put on display. But he is here bringing darkness out of judgment. Listen to what John Stott says. That silence, at last silence fell and darkness came. Darkness, perhaps, because no eye should see, and silence because no tongue could tell the anguish of soul that the sinless Savior now endured. Daniel Webster, or Douglas Webster, I'm sorry, he also said, uh, at birth, at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there's darkness at noon. Don't miss what's going on here. God here is sending darkness because of the extreme evil that is taking place here in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Jesus here from the cross out of the darkness. Imagine how eerie that would have been. So dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And from out of the darkness comes this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the world would Jesus scream this? Don't forget who he is. Don't forget that this is the very son of God, that this is the God man. This is the one who had spoken the world into existence. Yet he's the very one who took on flesh. And from the darkness, he cries, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Well, there have been many that have tried to answer this. And um, let me just walk through some of these. Some have said that Jesus here, when he cries, my God, my God, why? What he's saying is. 
I'm angry. God, I'm disappointed. I'm despairing here, God. I can't believe you're actually going to go through with this. It's as if from this stance, they want you to think that Jesus never really thought God would go through with it. That God would somehow, in the end, not go through with it. That he would rescue Jesus. And Jesus here on the cross is thinking, any minute, God, any minute, send your angels. According to this view, what he's thinking is, now that he realizes God's not going to rescue him, he's angry with God. If this were true, if this is why Jesus is screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it casts a horrible shadow over the life of Jesus. It would mean that in the very last, in the very last moments of his life, he didn't trust God. Instead, he's angry with him. He turns away and he asks, why, God, why? Just like a spoiled child when they think they're not being treated fairly says, why? You don't love me. You hate me. Is this what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. Another explanation of why God is or why Jesus here is saying, my God, why? Is they say that Jesus is crying out of loneliness. That while Jesus is on the cross, he knows God never really forsakes those who are truly his. But in this moment, he's feeling lonely. He's not really being abandoned. He's simply feeling abandoned. And in this moment, it's it's him crying out to God. My God, why? You and I know how that is. You and I, sometimes we know a truth, but we don't always feel a truth, do we? Sometimes we feel differently than what we know. If that's what's going on here, then Jesus somehow stops short of actually bearing the full weight of God for the sins of humanity. If he's not really suffering, if he's not being abandoned totally and he's just feeling lonely, then he really isn't suffering altogether. I think the real answer here is. Not that this was a cry of anger or a cry of loneliness, but I think the real answer here is this was a real cry of separation, a real cry of abandonment. Um, Up to this point, Jesus could say wholeheartedly he could rejoice in the fact that I'm not alone, as he said in John, I'm not alone. The father is with me, but he can't say that anymore on the cross when things go dark. Now, we get into a lot of issues here, and I'll attempt to answer these at a later date. But here there is this issue that is real. He is truly being abandoned here. He can't say anymore, I'm not alone. For him to be really made sin for us. If he's really going to take on the sin of the world, if he's really going to become sin for us, as the Bible teaches And God is holy like God is holy. Then God can't have anything to do with him. And God has to turn away. So in one sense, Jesus really is suffering true abandonment here. Isaiah 59, one through two says, behold, the Lord's hand. It's not short that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
And John Stott goes on and he says this. So then an actual and dreadful separation took place between the father and the son. It was voluntarily accepted by both the father and the son. It was due to our sins and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, the God forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture which accurately described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not crying out here. Why? Because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. In fact, he's quoting here from Psalm chapter 22. He quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. There, David, the psalmist, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? And in the end of that verse, the end of that chapter, he goes on. And in verses 22 through 24, we find out that God doesn't forsake him, but God does indeed rescue him. And David rejoices and he tells, I will tell others, I will tell others to rejoice in you because you have not abhorred the suffering You have not turned away from the face of your servant. Jesus here, when he cries out, my God, why? It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. He knows that this is why he came. But he's crying out in anguish because in this moment for you and for me, he is really. Forsaken. I started out by asking, have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt forsaken? Well, the reality is none of us. Yes, we have been forsaken. And maybe some of you in this room have been forsaken by a spouse or been forsaken by a child or been forsaken by a company or been forsaken by a parent. But the reality is none of us, none of us has ever been forsaken by God. And here's here's the irony of it. The irony of it is that you and I deserve to be forsaken by God. Do you understand that? You and I deserve to be cast into outer darkness. You and I deserve the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. You and I deserve no contact from God for him to turn away from us. And get this, he could have. Rightfully, he could have. When you and I were in our sins, he very well had he would have been justified to turn away from us, to never provide Christ, to never provide the cross, to never provide the empty tomb. We come and we celebrate it almost haphazardly as it's just part of the landscape that we've come to ignore. The reality is you and I deserve nothing but hell. And Jesus here in this moment on the cross, in a very real moment in his humanity, cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the while, he knows the Bible better than anyone. He is its author and he understands the ending of chapter 22. It goes on and this story goes a little further and it says that after this cry, the people were mistaken and they thought that he was crying for Elijah. After all, Elijah had been promised to come back and help those in need. What they missed was that that prophecy about Elijah was largely fulfilled in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had indeed helped prepare the way for Jesus. 
But they mistakenly think that he's calling for Elijah. And in the midst of this darkness, someone finds a sponge and fills it with this sour wine. This sour wine would have been the common drink for the soldiers. It would have been what they used to quench their thirst. It would have been horrible for someone who was suffering from severe thirst. You ever been really, really thirsty? I mean, really, really thirsty and drink something that is not, not refreshing. This water right here does the trick. If you'll indulge me, I'm going to take a drink. I remember as a kid, I used to used to ride skateboards a lot. I know I've done a lot of things. I'm a Randy Travis impersonator. I'm a, you know, I'm a Tony Hawk wannabe, you know, and all this kind of thing. But I remember as a kid, as a teenager, uh, young teenager, I used to skate a lot. And I would skate all over my city and almost died a couple times, you know, crossing streets and all that. But we would get so stinking sweaty and, and hot and thirsty and tired. And, uh, and everybody in the town knew us. Uh, they, they knew who we were. And some of them didn't like us and they would run us off. And, you know, all those, all those um, stickers, you know, skate or die. And those stickers, you know, skateboarding is not a crime. You know, I was one of those guys. But everybody knew us and we knew where we could go and where we couldn't go. Well, there was a particular bank in town that would always supply drinks for us. And uh, we would be so hot and thirsty and tired. And all we would do is we'd just roll up to that uh, to that window, the, the teller window outside. We, I mean, just, you know, roll up through there on our skateboards and they would send drinks out to us uh, through through the, the little thing that slides out. And it was usually always water. But this one particular day, all they have is Mountain Dew. And uh, boy, at first, that cold Mountain Dew, I mean, it tasted so good. It was it was great going down, but it didn't take long at all for me to realize that that wasn't what I needed. And Jesus here on the cross, when they take this sponge and they soak it in this sour wine and he's scripture gives us reference. That same Psalm 22 is prophesies and it talks about the fact that his tongue is is sticking to the sides of his mouth. You ever been that thirsty? He's thirsty. But what they don't realize is the thirst that he's crying out for here is not necessarily water. It is thirst for the presence of his father. But they stick this sponge on a reed and they hoist it up to him and he takes it to his lips. And even though it's not the best drink, it's not the drink of choice. Water would have been so much better for someone who was severely thirsty. But he still takes it and he he drinks enough just to moisten the inside of his mouth. And in so doing, as he takes this in, he is in some essence, in some small way, prolonging his life, albeit briefly. He's prolonging his life until he can drink every last drop out of the cup of the wrath of God. Do you remember in the garden, Jesus agonized and said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup, this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, what you will, Father. And here on the cross, he takes enough of the sour wine so that he can last just long enough to where the Bible here in our text says that he cries out one more loud cry. And in that cry, I believe that cry, even though Mark doesn't tell us, is the cry of it is finished. The Bible goes on and it says that right after this, and he lets out this loud cry and he breathes his last. I don't know about you. I've 
it's not a privilege, but I've had the opportunity to see a few people die. It's one of those things that comes with being a pastor sometimes. It's not always the best part of your job, but I've been there in the room. And I've watched people die in all sorts of ways. I've rarely watched someone die like this. In control. Deciding when it was finished and breathing their last. This is this is this is just stuff that doesn't happen. I've watched people seize up. I've watched people have to be put on medication and drift out. I've watched people do all sorts of things. But this is rare. Jesus is in control here. He's in control all the way up to the end. He's enduring the darkness of the judgment of God. He is enduring the God forsakenness, this extreme thirst, longing for his father, wanting to drink the very last drop of the cup that was meant for you and I. And then when it's all done, when he has taken every bit of it, he shuts it down. He breathes his last totally in control. And this is what he meant when he in John 10 said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. The whole point today of this sermon is this. You think you say, well, what, what's the point of this sermon? Where's the points? Here's the one point. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I never would be. Look at the God forsakenness here that he is experiencing. He was forsaken so that you and I never would be. The Bible here, the next part says that the curtain in the temple was torn. This is where I want you to see that you and I will never be forsaken because of what he did. Because he was, we will never be forsaken. The curtain in the temple is torn. Exodus 26 talks about this curtain. In this curtain uh, that, that was to be in the temple. It is, it is ornate. It is, it is woven in fine linen with Purple and scarlet and blue thread. It's and this thing's just ornate as all get out. It's got these cherubim just worked into this thing. And it's 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 hung on golden rods on silver pillars. And it's in the temple. And its purpose is to separate the holy place from the most holy place to separate that one place. Where one man could go one time a year. The most holy, the holy of holies was a place where you didn't just walk into. No one just walked into. In fact, a common person didn't walk into the holy place, let alone the most holy place. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, there were, the high priest would go into the holy of holies. But he wouldn't get, just walk in there. He would be chosen. It was an honor and a frightening situation to be chosen. But he would go in there and he would go and he would he would carry with him the blood of bulls and goats. He would wear a special robe and on that robe in the hem of the garment on the robe, they would sew in bells along that robe. And around his waist, they would tie a rope. And as he walks in and he goes through that curtain, this very curtain, as he walks through and he's carrying the blood of bulls and goats, the the bells at the bottom of the hem are, are jingling and the rope is Taught from the hands of those on the other side. The bells were there so that when he went into the presence of God, if he went in there in an unworthy manner and God just decided to kill him, then they would hear those bells stop ringing. They would know that something had happened. The rope was there so that 
if God killed him, if God smote him, if God struck him down. They didn't have to walk in there and take a chance on God doing the same thing to them. You imagine being that guy. So they would pull him out from the most holy place. I think what you see here in this is this. Very serious place. The most holy place was not for, for just anyone. One man, one time of year, and they would go back every single year to atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus here is on the cross. And he lets out this final cry. It is finished. In that moment, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. I've often liked to think that the reason it was torn from the top to the bottom instead of the bottom to the top is to show that only God could do that. I say, well, what, what's the point here? What's what's the bigger issue here? The bigger issue here is that no longer is the presence of God off limits. No longer is it just one man, one time a year who can go into the presence of God. No longer does he have to carry the blood of bulls and goats. No longer does he have to sew bells around his clothing. No longer does anyone have to tie a rope around anyone when they approach God. But when Jesus Christ died, he died to take the sins of all who would believe in him. And for those of us who would turn from our sins and trust Christ, we don't have to fear. We don't have to approach God through anyone else. When I stand here at the front of the sanctuary at the end of the service, I don't stand here as a priest, as a as a intermediary between you and God. I stand here as a friend, a pastor. I want to help you. I'd like to pray with you. But you don't need me. There is one name whereby we must come to God, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus was forsaken. So that you and I never would be. He in one fell swoop, all of those Think about that. All of those Pharisees, all the scribes, all of the Sanhedrin, they dogged him all of his life. They followed him everywhere he went. <coughs> everywhere he went, they tried to disprove him. They tried to trick him. They tried to trap him and they never could. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle in front of them. And they didn't believe while he's on the cross. They say, come down and then we'll believe. They wouldn't have believed. And in one fell swoop on the cross. He destroys their entire system. No more need to sacrifice. This is later in history, 70 A.D., about 35 or 40 years after this event. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. They had charged him, saying, you who would destroy the temple in three days. And rebuild it in three days. What they didn't realize was that his body is the temple. But yes, even in that moment, he destroyed the entire temple system so that you and I would have free access. The rest of this passage is pretty amazing. It's when I first read it, I thought, well, I don't know what I don't know what's here. I don't, want to, I don't want to make too much of the centurion. I don't want to make too much of the women. But I think what's, what they're showing us here is that in one fell swoop, Jesus destroys the Jewish system and says, Jews, 
No need to come through a priest anymore. Come to me through Christ. But also then he says that this Roman centurion, the one who was over the guard that was crucifying Jesus, when he saw Jesus die in this way, exclaimed, surely this was the son of God. And I think what he wants to show us is that it's not just for Jews. But he has opened the way for Gentiles as well. And then he goes on and he exclaims to uh, or, or explains to us that there were these women there as well. And the women serve a couple of different purposes. Uh, one, that they would they would serve him in his burial. They would become eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But here, I think there is another point. I think the women being mentioned here is to show us that it's not just the Jews. It's not just the Gentiles, but it is not any one rate or, or any one gender or race or anything else that everybody, every single human being who turns from their sin and trusts in the finished work of Christ on Calvary has access to God. He was forsaken so that you and I never would be. The Bible says there is therefore now there's no no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free. That we are all invited in. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 10, that just as the priest would go every day and stand Stand daily, sacrificing year after year after year. Jesus went and one time offered himself up. And when he was through, sat down at the right hand of God. I don't know what you're trusting in. I I don't know. I don't know if you're trusting in. Your ability to be good enough, your ability to keep enough law, your ability to to be wise enough, to be smart enough, to be well read enough, to be enlightened. To be liked enough to compare yourself to everyone else around you and say, well, I'm not not that bad. The reality is that compared to the very holiness of God, every single one of us falls short. And what I said earlier is true. We deserve every one of us deserves nothing but the very pits of hell. But if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, because he was forsaken, you will not be. See, in this world, I started with talking about these that have forsaken. There will still be husbands that forsake wives. There will still be wives that forsake husbands. There will still be parents that forsake children. There will still be children who forsake parents in their older age. There will still be companies who forsake employees. There will still be captains who forsake ships. But because Jesus was forsaken by God voluntarily for you. By faith in him, you will never be forsaken by God. Let's pray. For Jesus, I pray, God, that you would. Be merciful as we end this passage today. Lord, as the the truth of the passage now sits on the lives of those who are here, sits in their ears and on their hearts. God, I pray, God, that you would open those ears and open those hearts. And God, that you would allow it to sink deep, 
she would cause it to be ring true. God, that in this room, God, I pray that there will be those who. When they walked in here today, that they. We're trusting in so many other things, but God, I pray today that when they walk out, that they would trust only in you. God, would you breathe life today? Would you call these who are sitting here out of darkness and into light? God, we thank you for Christ and for his sacrifice. God, I pray that, Lord, that you would teach us to rest in that. Lord, whatever you want to do in this invitation, this time of response, this time of reflection, God, I pray that you would do whatever you want. Lord, we know your character. We know that you love to save. We know based on the cross that you love to save. And so, God, I pray today that you would save. You would be merciful in this place. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Take just a few minutes and today reflect on this and respond. We want to give you that opportunity. As I said earlier, I'll be here at the front, but there is nothing about me that is necessary for you to come to God. You don't come through a church. You don't come through a a pastor or a priest. You come through Jesus Christ alone. And today, if you're here and You've realized that you're lost in your sins and you need today to turn and trust Christ. And you just need help as to how do you go forward with that? I'd love to show you how I'd love to pray with you. But ultimately, you've got to trust Christ. And today, if you're here and maybe there's something in your life that is pressing and you're dealing with and you'd like to pray with me, I would be honored to pray with you. I would love to stand here and pray with you or kneel across the front you may not want to pray with me. You want to, may want to pray by yourself. These steps up here are open as an altar for you to come and, and pour yourself out to God on. You can do that from your seat. Today, if this is the church that God would have you to join and link arms here and serve his kingdom here, grow and worship him, then we would love to receive you as a member of this church. Whatever it is. God is sharing with you that God is calling you to don't harden your heart today. But submit yourself to his authority and say yes to whatever it is. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.